Good morning. So happy to see you all here this morning. My name is Heath Cummings. I'm an elder here at Hammock Street Church. We're thrilled you chose to join us. Today is part five in a series Pastor Russell has been walking us through. It's called Investigating Jesus, How We Know and Why We Follow. It's been a remarkable series. In it, we've examined the credibility of Jesus because the credibility of Jesus is the credibility of Christianity. Either Jesus is who he says he is, and we should do what he says, or not. We've walked through the book of Luke, which is a real, factual, historical account of Jesus, who walked this earth 2,000 years ago. We've learned why Luke wrote the book, to provide an account of Jesus' life. And he told us he was one of many to do so. We learned about John the Baptist, the one who paved the way. We learned about his faith, a real faith that produces fruit, not just belief. We learned about how Peter's early interactions with Jesus, how he confessed to Jesus early on that he would do as you say, even when the thing that Jesus was telling him to do didn't make any sense to him. And we saw how Jesus rewarded that faith. And we know that he will do the same for us if we simply do as he says. We learned last week about how Jesus taught that we show our love for God by how we love our neighbors and what that type of neighborly love looks like Jesus showed us in the parable of the Good Samaritan. This week, we're going through chapter 15 of Luke in a sermon we're calling Rebranding. Now, when I hear the word rebranding, I think of companies rebranding themselves. You might think of UPS and what can Brown do for you. That one worked really well. Or you might think of the Washington football team. That one did not. They're the commanders now. I'm not sure that's much much better. It's funny, in my, my day job, As a fantasy football analyst, both of these rebrandings found their way into my world. The football team one isn't so surprising. Just about the time that I got used to writing football team instead of the old name, they changed the name again. At least they sold some extra jerseys, I guess. And the What Can Brown Do For You became a popular team name for anybody who drafted someone with the last name Brown. Today we're going to flip this concept on its head. We're not talking about rebranding in a way of getting people to look at us different or call us something different, like corporations do. We're not trying to sell anybody. We're looking at rebranding in terms of how we look at other people, what we call them, how we look at ourselves. More accurately, how God views those other people and us. We're looking at rebranding in the way that Jesus taught it, not just in these three parables, but in his entire ministry. At this point, I'd understand if you were beginning to wonder what any of this has to do with Luke 15, or the series we've been in the past five weeks. Let's pray, and then we'll walk through it together. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this group of people. Thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for your Son and for your Holy Spirit. Pray that you'd open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to hear your word this morning. Amen. Luke 15 is a chapter that includes three parables, and I'm sure you're at least vaguely familiar with one of them, maybe all of them. But before we get to those, I want to get to how Luke set them up. In verse 1 and verse 2, and there's going to be a lot of scripture today. You can follow along in your Bible, or I'll be reading from the NASB, which we'll have on the screen behind me. Verse 1, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The very thing... 
first thing I noticed about this is that Jesus' message was causing tax collectors and sinners to come near to him. His teaching, his life, was attractional, even to people who were not yet following his rules. Imagine if that was the case today, both in our world and here at Hammock Street. What if the church, our church, was known as the place that is attractional to the people who need to hear about Jesus the most? We're going to get back to that theme, but right off the bat, there's a lesson here. Jesus was appealing to people who were living a life that was offensive to the religious leaders, and they did not like that. The second thing I noticed is that tax collectors get their own label alongside sinners. It's not that they weren't sinners. They absolutely were. It's that in the Jewish world, they were worse than sinners. They were traitors, collecting money from their own people for the Roman oppressors. Worse, many of them were crooks, collecting more than the going rate of taxes to enrich themselves. So Lucas set the scene. We've got sinners, tax collectors, Pharisees, and scribes all gathered together listening. The Pharisees are unhappy with who Jesus is associating with. These three parables we're going to read through are his response to them. But they have a message for everyone in that audience. When I started this sermon, my first thought was, how do I get people to put their Pharisee hats on? Because I'm pretty preconditioned to be against them. I cannot identify with them at all. I guess a lot of you are the same way. I enjoy it when Jesus zings them. It may help to start by rebranding them in our hearts and minds before we go any further. The Pharisees and scribes were too legalistic for us. They were not perfect by any means. But their entire reason for being that way was they were trying to follow 613 plus laws. And they were doing that because they thought it was God's will. They were attempting to be righteous in God's eyes through their own works. And in fairness to them, their scripture, the Old Testament, was littered with instances of Israel not following the law and then being sent off into exile, slavery, or worse. All these extra laws the Pharisees had come up with were designed to be a safety feature, like the bumpers in a bowling alley, designed to keep people out of the gutter. All these sinners and tax collectors were not following those laws. They were living in the gutter, some of them on purpose. And in the Pharisees' eyes, if those people were attracted to Jesus, and if he was welcoming them, then there must be something wrong with him, his teaching, or both. In their eyes, he was guilty by association. Jesus doesn't do guilt by association, thankfully, or he'd have stayed in heaven. It's easy for us, looking back 2,000 years ago, with a full accounting of what Jesus didn't said, to judge the Pharisees harshly. And there's plenty to judge them for. Jesus makes it clear. But just for the next 20 minutes or so, I'd like for you to try to give them the benefit of the doubt. Take them at their word that their goal and purpose is to please God. The reason I'm asking you to do that is because to really hear the lesson Jesus is teaching, we need to put our Pharisees' hats on or our robes. That might sound hard, but I don't think it should. This man receives sinners and eats with them. The Pharisees and scribes were offended by the people Jesus was hanging out with, eating with, attracting, receiving, welcoming. That was a really big deal in those times. Hospitality was more important in ancient Jewish culture than it is in ours today. That's evident throughout the Bible. How you received guests, how you treated and fed people in your home, who you associated with, had an enormous impact on how you were viewed in society. The fact that Jesus would show hospitality or accept hospitality from sinners and tax collectors was scandalous to them. While that may not fully make sense to us, we can recognize the self-righteousness, right? It's easy to see in other people. 
It's harder to see in ourselves. But that doesn't mean it's not there. Deep down, most of us have our own category of those people. Those people who are wrong about whatever we feel right about. The Pharisees felt most right about the law. Too right. And so they judged as unrighteous anyone who saw it different. I'm an expert on sports. I can get self-righteous hearing someone else who clearly doesn't know as much as me talking about football. That sounds dumb, but it's true. We're most prone to self-righteousness on the topics we feel most right about. Where that gets us in trouble is when we start using the perceived wrongness of those people to judge them, to see them as less than, as unrighteous. So back to the scene. The Pharisees saw this new teacher, this man, Jesus, proclaiming to be closer to God than any of them, coming awfully close to being, claiming to being God himself, definitely claiming to be the only way to God. And he was hanging out with these sinners, those people. These people didn't even try to follow the law, didn't even care to please God. If Jesus really was who he claimed to be, he would never. So they grumbled, and Jesus responded. Luke 15, starting in verse 3. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have lost my sheep I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus sees their blood boiling, so he tells them a story about sheep. Huh? That doesn't make any sense to us. You have to remember, though, the Jewish people had been shepherds for as long as they'd been the Jewish people. When Joseph's brothers and father came down to Egypt during the drought, all the way back in Genesis, Joseph told the Pharaoh they were shepherds. David, the greatest king of Israel, was a shepherd when he killed Goliath. Earlier in Luke, chapter 2, an angel of the Lord appeared to tell the shepherds first of the birth of Jesus. A parable about sheep was right in the wheelhouse of the Pharisees and the scribes and the sinners and the tax collectors Jesus was talking to. And it revealed something to them instantly. God saw these sinners as his. David opens maybe the most famous psalm, Psalm 23, with the words, The Lord is my shepherd. Now the Pharisees didn't have the Bible that we have, but they absolutely had that psalm. They knew the Lord as their shepherd. They also knew that a good shepherd would not just write off a sheep that had wandered off. A good shepherd would go find that sheep. And he would rejoice when he did. The disconnect for them was that they did not see the sinners as sheep who had wandered off. They saw them as bad, as unrighteous. Jesus told them instead to see them as lost. His father's lost sheep. That's why Jesus came. For those people. To find his lost sheep. In verse 8, we get to the second parable in chapter 15. Or what woman... If she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. 
In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. We don't need any help understanding this one, do we? We know how valuable money is. The word translated coin here is drachme, which was equal to one day's wage. So it wasn't a penny or even a silver dollar. This was a significant amount of money, again, lost. Jesus was telling the Pharisees, is telling us that these sinners, those people, the unrighteous, are not only gods. He doesn't just see them as his sheep who are lost. He also sees them as valuable. And again, the woman in the parable rejoices. So much so that she calls others to rejoice with her. No wonder they were drawing near. Now at this point, you might think Jesus is done. You might think the Pharisees had heard enough, that they'd slink off to their dungeons, defeated again. The sinners and tax collectors would high-five each other. The day was won. Jesus has rebranded the sinners, telling the Pharisees, telling the sinners themselves that they are bad, they're just lost. That God sees them as both his and valuable. That God will celebrate when they repent. That would be a great lesson. Jesus wasn't done. It's one thing to give an example of sheep and coins. He needed to hammer it home with a truly despicable sinner. He needed to find someone the entire audience could see as wrong, unworthy, undeserving of the Father's love. And that's where our final parable comes from. It's probably a story you're familiar with. The prodigal son. Back in verse 11. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on to a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. You hear it, right? This kid wants his inheritance, even though his father is still alive. That's not much different than just wishing his father would hurry up and die. And his father gives it to him, and he immediately squanders it all with loose living. This word translated as loose, loose, is only used by Luke or anyone else in the Bible one time. I had to go searching for, for definitions. I found a few. Wildly extravagant, very wasteful, abandoned to vice and corruption, shamelessly immoral. I would imagine you have a picture in your mind of how he wasted that money. I would guess it's worse than what you're imagining. At least as bad. Not only did this ungrateful kid basically wish his father was dead, but when his father gave in to his demands, he immediately blew it all in all the worst ways. Can you relate to that? Probably not as well as I can. The first time I went off to college, I didn't pay a penny. Uh, Tuition was covered. I had spending money. Did not have to work that whole first semester. I came home four months later with a 0.6 GPA, zero dollars in my pocket, and more than $1,000 in parking tickets. I don't know where I was parking, but it was not class. Um, As I said, I, I, I have a hard time identifying with the Pharisees. I have a very easy time identifying with the sinners. Jesus wants to make sure we're all on the same page. This kid, like me, was wrong, wrong. He'd broken the law. No one would want to defend him. He was unrighteous. 100% those people. 
You could stop the parable right here. It'd be its own parable. Dads, if your kids ask for their inheritance early, don't. Jesus wasn't done. Verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods the swine were eating. And no one was giving anything to him. Okay, now we can really end the parable. The bad guy got what he deserved. Kids, don't ask for your inheritance early. Look what happens. You'll end up starving, feeding pigs, wishing you could eat their food. Loose living leads to poverty and filth. Patience is a virtue. Wait your turn. Jesus still isn't done. Verse 17. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up. And go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. He came to his senses. What do you do when those people come to their senses? Realize the mistake they've made. Gloat? Lecture? Scold? I can imagine the Pharisees. He's reaping what he sowed. Wait. That sounded like me. I can't say I've never said those words. He came to his senses. This may be where some of you are right now. It's been me, unfortunately, a few times. That realization that you've ended up right where you never wanted to be. It's where you deserve to be. You've earned it. But it's not what you planned. If that's where you are right now, you're in the right place at the right time. This next verse is just for you. Verse 20, so he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. In most of Jesus' parables, there's a figure that represents his father. In this one, he makes it really easy on us. The father is the father. He sees his wretched son, the one who took his money and ran, the one who squandered it all, on his own pleasure. And what does Jesus tell us the Father does? He felt compassion for him. He ran. He embraced him. He kissed him. No hesitation. No lecture. No I told you so. He was so full of joy at the sight of his child coming back to him that he didn't have time for any of that. As much as any other parable, this is Jesus showing us the heart of his Father assuring us that we can turn back to God no matter what we've done. That when we come to our senses, he will embrace us, just like the father in this story. He will rejoice like the shepherd and the woman in the first two parables. He will throw a party to celebrate our repentance. Ah, yes, the party. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, let us celebrate and eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. Don't let anybody tell you that Christianity is boring, that it isn't fun, that there isn't joy. If that's true, it has nothing to do with Jesus. That's us messing it up. 
Jesus tells us that there is a party in heaven for every sinner that repents. God loves it when we turn away from our sins and turn toward him. Not everyone always responds with the same joy, though. Verse 25, Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began to inquire what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry. He was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat, so I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, was lost and has been found. It would be easy for me again to poke fun at the Pharisees here. They're clearly the older brother, right? Jesus loves the sinners, punks the Pharisees again, right? Look at how the father interacts with the older brother. He goes to him and pleads with him to come to the party. He tells the older son that all that is mine is yours. The father is pursuing the older son, much like he ran after the young, younger son when he saw him coming. Maybe this parable should be called the prodigal sons, because Jesus is telling the Pharisees they're lost sons as well. And all the things we just said about sinners and tax collectors apply to them too. God is waiting to throw a party for some repenting Pharisees. It's easy for me to read that last section and think, oh, that evil older brother. Much in the same way I chuckle when Jesus scorns the Pharisees. But that's me doing the same thing the Pharisees did at the beginning of this chapter. God looks at both children, both groups, with the same love and the same desire they repent. That's because God doesn't see good and bad people. He doesn't see Pharisees and sinners. He doesn't see scribes and tax collectors. He sees lost and found. He sees his valuable children. We are his valuable children. Those people are his valuable children. Every one of them. Now, before we close out, there's one more thing, and and I think this is really cool. So uh, so pay attention. There's there's a a very common theme throughout all three parables, right? It's lost. Uh, You see it in verse 6. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which is lost. Again in verse 9, when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In verse 24, when he's talking to his servants, For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they begin to celebrate. And then finally in verse 32, talking to the older son, But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, was lost and has been found. Each time the word lost is translated from the same Greek word, apollomy. In its most literal translation, it means to destroy. It shows up 92 times in the King James Version of the Bible. It's translated as destroy, lose, 
be lost, lost, and most commonly, perish. You might recognize one of those times. It comes in the book of John, one of the many others who wrote an account of the life of Jesus. And in chapter 3, John documents a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, one of the most famous Pharisees, when Nicodemus was trying to understand some of Jesus' teaching. Let's look at verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not apollony, shall not be lost. It's the same word. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world or to judge those people, whoever they are for us. He came that the world might be saved, might be found through him. He came to restore our relationship with the Father, not to determine who deserved the Father's love. He came to remove the distinction between Pharisee and sinner, between scribe and tax collector. What does that have to do with the series we've been in? I think everything. When you see those people as God's valuable children, when you rebrand good and bad to lost and found, it becomes infinitely easier to move towards the type of neighborly love Jesus illustrates in the parable of the Good Samaritan. When you see yourself as God's valuable child, when you stop judging yourself as good or bad, but see yourself as someone who was once lost but has been found by him, it becomes easier to say with Peter to Jesus, I will do what you say. And if we're able to do that, we'll become a little bit more like the man who inspired Luke to write these words in the first place. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you that despite what we've done, you don't see us as good or bad. You see us as lost or found, and that you sent your son into this world to save us, Lord. Pray that we would go into the world this week seeing people, seeing ourselves the way that you see us. In Jesus' name, amen.